Good morning. Good morning. We're in the middle of a series called Missing the Point, and we're going through the book of Luke, and we're in chapter 11 right now. And this is the part where we start slowing down. You're like, how long are we going to be in Luke chapter 11? We're going to be in it for a, lo- for a while. So today we're looking at chapter 11, verses 34 through verse 41. And uh, the series is basically chapter 11 in the book of Luke is a very interesting chapter because this is where Jesus starts to show his like irritation side. Like he's like, I'm frustrated with you guys. You got so many things wrong. You keep missing the point. I need to correct you on this. I need to fix you on that. You got the wrong perspective on this. And in a way, some people might be kind of bothered by that. But what we discover is we start to discover more and more of what Jesus is passionate about. So if there's something you're really passionate about and people keep getting it wrong, you will get frustrated, right? And this is kind of what's happening in this chapter. And so for the past few weeks, we've been talking about how when Jesus is asked a question about prayer, Jesus is like, you totally missed the point of what prayer is supposed to accomplish. Or when he talks about, you know, does God love me? It's like, oh, you totally missed the point on how God loves. You know, just because he doesn't answer your prayer request doesn't mean he doesn't love you. Like, so every single time something comes up, Jesus corrects and, and basically rebukes and says, you guys got it wrong, and this is frustrating because for the past few years, I've been trying to teach you this one thing, and you keep missing the point. So today, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about something else uh, along that line of what frustrates Jesus. And um, we're going to start by asking this one question, which is this. How do I become a positive influence to the world? How do I become a positive influence to the world? So from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, Jesus is trying to accomplish this one thing. God is trying to accomplish this one thing, which we like to call at this church, experiencing heaven together. What that means is we see that the world is broken, right? And Jesus, he doesn't just want to fix it with a snap of a finger. He actually wants to have us participate in bringing reparation into the world. He wants us to restore the world with him. He wants to partner with us to make the world a better place. And that includes restoring the relationship that we lost with God. It means to restore the relationship we, we lost with each other. You know, there's all these things that God really, you know, said, like, this is what we need to fix. But in order to experience heaven together, <clears throat> there needs to be this one key element in all of our lives called influence. We need to be able to talk to people and walk them through life in a way that we feel is best for the world. So, we, we, you know, like, hey, you know, I know you got in a fight, but maybe you need to say you're sorry. Maybe you need to apologize. Maybe you need more humility in your life. Maybe, you know, and you walk people through these big trials in life. Maybe there's too much ego in this, you know, or maybe there's too much pride. Whatever it is, we need influence to talk to people so that we could walk them through and walk each other through some of the big trials of our lives. But the problem is this. Some of us have lost influence. When we start speaking, they're like, oh, there was that Christian crazy guy talking about these things again, right? We've lost influence. And so the question is, how do we restore that? How do we gain influence again? Maybe you've talked to somebody. You say, ah, I'm going through this big trouble. And that other person you're talking to just gives you this one word of advice. And you're like, wow, I'm glad I listened to you. How do we become that person? And so Jesus, at this point, starts talking about that. How do we become people of influence in the world? And not just any influence, a positive influence to the world, to the people around us. So we begin in chapter 11, verse 33, and this is how he starts this. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl, like a light, like a lamp. If you light it up and then you put it under a bowl, it's, it's not serving its purpose. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. So He's giving almost like a duh kind of story here. He's like, yeah, we all know this to be true, right? If you light a lamp, if you cover it up, it's not serving its purpose. 
What he's really saying here is this, okay? If you have a, light, uh, a lampstand, it's not the lampstand that's important, it's the light that's inside. The only purpose that the lampstand has here, okay, is to make sure that what's inside is being emitted into the world around it. Okay? So with that in mind, he says, now I want to talk about what I really want to talk about, and this is what he says. Next verse. Your eye is the lamp of your body. It's kind of like, ooh, what does that mean? Okay. Okay, this is the part where science and what the Bible says doesn't agree with each other because the way that people saw the world back then. Okay, today we understand sight is a form of light that's coming into our eyeballs and that's being translated with, I'm, I'm not a biologist, I don't know, but it's, it's somehow translating to something in your brain and that's how you see things, right? That's how it works. Light entering into your eye. 2,000 years ago in, in, on the other side of the world, that's not what they, what they believed. What they believed back then is that whenever we see something, it's because there's light that's emitting from our eyes to the thing that illuminates the thing we're trying to see. So if you've been in the dark for a few hours, or maybe a few minutes, and first it was completely dark, right? But as you're staring at it, you start to see in the dark. Because back then they used to think that it's light from the inside that's emitting out of your eyes into the, onto the object you're trying to see. That's what they used to believe. So when he says, your eye is a lamp of your body, he's not saying anything remarkable here. He's saying something that people already believed back then, okay? Okay, now remember what he just said about the whole point of a lamp, okay? The lamp, the light is to illuminate the whole room, right? Okay, so he says, your eye is kind of like that lamp, that there's a light inside that's being emitted into the world. And then he says this, when your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light, but when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. So what he's saying here is very interesting. Okay, and if you think about it, you're like, oh, that's so true. When you look at something, let's just say you're looking at this one situation where you're in line and, and then your grocery store and another line opens up and there's nobody there, right? Depending on what's inside of you, you'll see that as, A, an opportunity. It's like, yes, I don't have to wait in line anymore. And you'll see it as a good thing, right? Or if your body is not full of light, You'll see, that, you know, you'll see that as, or no, wait, if you're full of light, you're thinking, oh, I could totally benefit from this. But if you're full of light, if you're, you know, you're thinking, oh, that lady that's, you know, that's been waiting in line for like a few hours, that person could go there and I'm going to let her know that, look, there's an open line. Like people see the same situation differently depending on what's inside of you, okay? So what he's saying here, okay, is there's, the way we see the world is dependent on how we are on the inside. In the same way, a lamp, when you light it up, it emits to the outside world, right? In the same way, the light that's inside of us emit, is emitting to the way we see the world. The way you see the world is dependent on what's inside of you. Okay, that's what Jesus is stating right here. Now, if you notice, there's two words that Jesus uses here. He uses the word healthy and the word unhealthy. These two words are really key to understanding this. Okay, so the word healthy has several other meanings. The word healthy means generosity and sincerity. He said, if you're full of generosity and sincerity, if you're the kind of person that's always looking for ways to help somebody out, if you're always looking for ways to, to say, like, how can I contribute to this person's life? If that's you, you have healthy eyes. That's how they would say in the ancient world. You have healthy eyes. But the word unhealthy in the Greek also translates to selfishness and covetousness. If you're always looking to see what I could get out of this world, then you're going to see the world differently than a person who's always looking for generosity. The way you see the world, okay, you see the world differently, next slide, depending, you see the world differently depending on our level of selflessness. So how selfish or selfless are you? That's what Jesus is asking here. 
If you are very selfish, you'll see the world in one way. If you're selfless, you'll see the world in another way. If you're selfless, he calls that healthy eyes. If you're selfish, that's unhealthy eyes. What's inside of you affects how you see the world. And then Jesus continues to the next part. He kind of concludes this small section by saying this. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Make sure that you have these, the generosity inside of you. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. He says, when there's light in a lampstand and it shines to the room and you're standing in that room and now you can see everything in the room, you are benefiting Okay, you're totally benefiting, 100% benefiting from the light that's shining, that's emitting from that lamp right there. He says, you could be that lamp. He says, if you have generosity inside of you, the people around you will benefit from that light inside of you. And maybe you've been on the recipient side of that. You've been in need. And you're just telling your friends, like, I am having such a tough day. I, I, need, I need some relief in my life. And as you're saying that, somebody in the room who's super generous gives you something and you're like i'm so glad i was a friend that i'm your friend because without you i'd be like so so stressed out right now the world benefits from your generosity and so jesus says make sure that the light inside of you is actually light and not darkness because the way that we're going to bring heaven on earth is through your love your generosity your selflessness the health inside of you matters to the world around you that's what Jesus is saying here. The posit- so it says, your positive influence originates in the health of your heart. So how is your heart? Every time you see something, do you see it as an opportunity for self-gain? Or when you see something, you're like, oh, that's an opportunity for somebody else to gain. That difference, according to Jesus, could change the world around you. But Jesus doesn't stop the teaching there because as Jesus is teaching this, there's a group of people around him called the Pharisees and these are the super religious people of the day, right? And one of them, one of the Pharisees is listening to this and he's feeling convicted like, oh, I need to prove to Jesus that I'm not an unhealthy person. I want to prove to Jesus that I'm a generous person. How do I do that? How do I do that? And he has an idea. Okay, so that's the next verse. He goes, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him because that's a generous thing you do, Right? So he went in and reclined at the table. Now, why would you recline at a table? Luke, who wrote this, is giving you a commentary on the lifestyle of this Pharisee. Okay, so this Pharisee, in those days, you usually sit down on the floor. You had no chairs back then, right? So the Last Supper painting, totally not historically accurate. Okay, but, um, but they would just sit down and eat. But the people who were rich had all these cushions around the table that they could actually recline. I'm not going to do it now, but you could just imagine me full on sideways. You'll rest on one elbow and you'll eat with the other hand. That's how the rich would eat. So when, when it says here that the Pharisee invited Jesus over, right, and they got to recline, he's saying, this is a guy that's really, really rich. He has a lot of money. And he felt so bad and he wanted to prove Jesus wrong so much that he wanted to invite him over. And he's like, here, you know, just eat all the food you want, Jesus. I want to prove to you that I'm actually a very generous guy. He's like, okay, you know. So that's, that's, that's the setting that, he, that Luke is setting up for us here, Okay. Next verse. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, to which some of the you know, parents here are like, oh, that's so gross. You know, you know, Jesus, I saw what you touched last. And, you know, no, you should wash your hands. No, that's not what's happening here. 
he's not talking about cleanliness of the hands or, you know, if you wash your hands before you ate. The wash that he's referring to, and you're going to find out in the context in a few verses, is, is a ceremonial washing. Uh, rit- it's a ritual. Back in those days, you want to make sure that you are doing, like for most of us, we pray before we eat. That would be a ritual that we do. That is a prayer that we offer before, right? Cleaning and washing is part of a ritual. And we're not just talking about washing of hands. We're talking about washing the plates and the cup. Even though it's already clean, we want to make sure we wash it. So in order to understand this, I want to make sure that, that, um, that we have a context, a cultural context of this. So let's, let's look at the context of this whole thing so we understand what's happening here. Okay. So I want to help us get into the minds of the people who are actually in this story so that we all are on the same page as Jesus taught, gives this teaching. The first thing we have to understand is that in the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, right, <clears throat> there are certain things that God created, like the earth, that is sustaining our, life, our lives. So if you get hungry, you could go to the garden and find out that the earth has produced some tomatoes and you're like, yes, thank you God for giving me these tomatoes. And you eat it and you're like, oh, it's so nourishing. It's so good. I love this food, right? And then you're like, you know, water, water is is nourishing. It it, it sustains my life. When I'm thirsty, I drink it and water has many things that I could benefit from. Water is so good. And so after a long time, people realize that God is a good giver of gifts, right? And some of these gifts that he's given us we need to take care of them with, and give it as much respect as we can. So one of the main teachings of the first century was this, that food is extremely sacred. It's extremely sacred to most of you guys like, yes, amen, <laughs> right? Food is sacred, right? Because without food, you die. With food, you're fine, right? People are willing to go to war over a lack of food or, to, you know, whatever the case is, food is sacred and that's a good thing. We should be careful with the food that we eat. We should not treat it as junk, even junk food, I guess we should, right? But here's the thing. When there's something sacred that we recognize is very important to our lives, this is what we tend to do, and this is not a bad thing. The next thing we, that they would do is that sacred things are usually protected by religious rules. So I'll give you an example of this, and it's not a good example, but it's an example that I came up with. So growing up, one of the, my favorite shows I used to watch was DuckTales. You guys know DuckTales? Yeah, did you know there's a remake on the Disney Channel? I've been watching that too. Um... <laughs> Well, my wife is laughing because I actually got teary-eyed in the last episode. <laughs> Huey, Louie, and Dewey, they actually met their mom in this latest episode, and I got, oh my gosh, that's so, okay. Okay, but that's not the point I wanted to make. So if you know the story of DuckTales, you'll know that Scrooge McDuck, the rich guy, the, the rich duck, he made his fortune because he, his first paycheck, the first coin that he ever earned was his number one dime, right? And he has a case, and if you go to his money bin, he has like, well, tons of cash, tons of cash, billions, gazillions of dollars, right? But for some reason, in the center of it, there's this one coin that's sitting on this pedestal with a glass case, kind of like the Beauty and the Beast thing that covers the, the rose. It has like, it's encased in this little big glass dome thing, and he doesn't let anybody touch it. Why does he do that? It's because even though he sees it as sacred, he wants to make sure that everybody else notices that it's a sacred object. Because when his nephews come in town, they're going to be like, hey, cool, a coin. Takes it and throws it in with the rest of the coins. Scrooge McDuck is looking through the money bin looking for that one coin because it's a very important coin to him. So in order to make sure that the people who don't know the sacredness knows that it is sacred, he creates all these barriers. He puts it on a pedestal. He puts it in a case. He does all these things to let everybody else know that it's sacred. And religions do that too. Like everything that we do, right, is to, so like when... 
when you find a place that's special, holy ground, God says, take off your shoes. Why? Because this ground is different from any other ground. This is special ground. This is holy ground. And so you create these rules in order to remind people how sacred the, floor, the ground is, the coin is, the day is. That's why we call it holiday. We take the day off to remind everybody, this is a day you should not forget. So sacred things are protected by religious rules. And that's not a bad thing either. So, so far, food is extremely sacred. That's not a bad thing, right? Sacred things are usually protected by, 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 by religious rules. That's not a bad thing either, okay? But things start to get bad in the next step. Because what this leads to is religious rules divide communities. This is where it gets bad. So let's just say we have a holiday, a day that is special to us. And there's one group of people who says the way we're going to treat that day special is by doing A, B, and C. And they have a reason. A, because of this. B, because B. And C, because there's something amazing about C. And this is how we're going to show respect to this specific, specific holy day. But there's another group of people who are like, no, 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 no. That's not enough respect. We need to make sure that we do X, Y, and Z. And now you have two people, two groups of people, who are trying to accomplish the same thing, but they all are criticizing each other on how the way the other group is doing it is not good enough. And this is what's happening in this story, okay? Food is sacred, right? And because it's sacred, you want to do everything you can to make sure that everybody knows that you should not waste food. And so in those days they realize that food is so sacred that we should not leave it on the dirt floor. Obviously, we shouldn't do that. So what should we do? Well, we should put it in a container. They should put it on the plate, or we should put it in a cup. But they're like, but wait a minute. What if the cup and plate is not worthy of the food? They're like, oh, you're right. Okay, so we need to do, what we need to do is we have to go through this ritual. We need to scrub one side of the plate, and then scrub the other side of the plate, and that'll be our ritual, and then we'll pray. Yeah, we'll pray, and then we'll scrub one side, and scrub the other side, and we'll put it down, and we'll put the food on top of it, and that'll be our ritual. Another group says, no, 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 no. That's disrespectful to God. When you wipe one side of the plate, then you should pray. And then, if you use the same cloth to wipe the other side, then it's not clean anymore. So you need to stop, get another piece of cloth, and wipe the other side, and then pray again, and then put it down. And so you have two groups who are saying, they're trying to accomplish the same thing, Right? But there are two divided groups that are trying to accomplish the same thing, but they don't agree with how they do it. That's what's happening here. So when the Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house to eat a meal, he's watching them. He's watching Jesus to say, well, which group do you fit into? And Jesus' response is, I don't play that game. It's like, <clears throat> do you realize that the sacred thing here is the food, not the plate? Why are you guys divided over how you clean the plate and the cup? Why are you doing this? Well, there's a reason for that. The reason why they do this is because, the, the next thing, because divisions remain because religious leaders found ways to benefit from it. So in those days, there are two groups, two big groups. They're called the Hellelites and the Semites. It's because the two rabbis are Hillel and Shemai, and so they call themselves the House of Shemai, House of Hellel. And these two groups... What they discovered is that by upholding their way of doing certain things, how to keep certain things sacred, there's, there's some kind of power that comes with it. People pay them money because they want to be part of your group. People are respected. Hey, you're, you're, you're like at the top level of that group, aren't you? It's like, yes, I am. It's like, oh, you're a respected member of this community. Well, thank you very much, right? You get respect, you get money, you get power, you get status. And so these divisions, in a way, they're benefiting from the divisions that are created over this one thing of how to keep food sacred. 
So Jesus shows up into the situation and says, I'm not going to wash my cup at all to give a statement that I'm not going to play your stinking game because this is dividing a community. And so with that in mind, the next verse. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisee, you clean the outside of the cup and dish. Okay, so I brought a cup here. It's not mine. My kids. I promise. Okay, this is what he's saying here. Now you have to imagine Jesus holding up a cup at this point. He's like this. He's like, oh. It's like, now you Pharisees, you're so good at, you know, cleaning the outside of the cup and dish. You're so good at that. Look how shiny that thing is. Wow, this is really good. And then he looks on the inside. It's like, but the inside, and remember, the Pharisees are listening to every word Jesus is saying here. But the inside, and the Pharisees are expecting Jesus to say, the inside is clean or not clean or use the same cloth. That's what he's expecting to say. He's like, but the inside, hmm, what does he say? You are full of greed and wickedness. He's like, oh, but the inside, you guys are so full of wickedness and greed. And, and at this point, the Pharisees are like, wait, are we talking about the cup? just like didn't you hear me say you (laughs) right jesus is using this as an as a moment in in this conversation to make a statement about the people who are practicing these things the pharisees are like wait are we talking about the cup here are we talking about me like what's going on and jesus is like i'm glad you brought that up next verse and this is where he loses it he's like you foolish people and some of your translation it says are you stupid no, really, some of your translations would say that. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? What he's saying here is this. He's saying, I'm pretty sure that the thing on the outside is the same thing on the inside, right? It's plastic here, it's plastic here. I think it's the same thing. The person who made this, I don't know, uh, doesn't say who made this, but whoever made this, right? Like, when he made the outside, the inside was also created in the process. It's like, you can't just make one side. <laughs> like, can you make a cup with only the outside? No, can you make a cup with just the inside? No, the minute you make the inside, the outside is already formed. If you make the outside, the inside is already formed. It's like, this is so ridiculous that you're dividing over whether if you should clean the inside and the outside, the outside and the inside and pray in between or whatever. He's like, you guys are missing the point. What the, the point is, is what's inside the cup. The sacred food that you're trying to protect, that is what's in question here. Why are you dividing over the container that it comes in, right? And he says, and this is a great segue to talk about you. You guys are so divided over these things that you forgot what's inside of you. He said the food is the thing that we should keep sacred here, not these practices. Because these practices are separating us. By the way, I was at a dinner function once, and the food, you know, it was one of those moments where, like, the talk went on for a long time, and after the talk, the food is supposed to come out. Maybe it's like a wedding. Maybe you guys have this example like that where you're like, okay, thanks for the toast, but you've been giving a toast for the last hour. I'm just hungry. It was one of those where the talk was long, and by the time the food came out, we're just like, let's just eat, because I don't care. You know? like, even if you don't like salad, if that's the first thing that comes out, you're going to eat the whole thing, because you're that hungry. Okay. I was so hungry, and everybody at my table, it's one of those round tables, so we see each other eating, right? We're so hungry that the food came out, and I'm like, I'm just going to eat. I started eating, right? And the person who's sitting across from me is like, aren't you a pastor? Like, aren't you supposed to pray before you eat? And I'm like, I'm hungry. Lay off of me. <laughs> okay, okay. But, you know, because I'm a pastor, I, I didn't say that. I said, oh, yes, let's, let's pray, you know? <laughs> and, but, you know, but 
if I pray, I know it's going to be compromised. It's going to be like, thank you for this food, amen, right? So I'm like, why don't you pray? And I was hoping the prayer would be short. And I realized something in this person's prayer. This person's prayer went like this. Like, dear Jesus, thank you for this food. You know, would you bless this food into our bodies? Bless this food into our bodies. This is a ritual that we often say. We say things like, bless this food. By the way, this is a side note, not part of my notes, but I just want you to know. In the biblical days, no one ever, ever prayed, bless this food. Because, and by the way, people who say bless this food are people who really had no part in, you know, planting the seed and raising the crops and then reaping it, you know, like, because the idea back then is somebody planted a seed, something came out of the ground, some water was given, and some fertilizer, I don't know how to plant things, and, you know, but okay, right? I got the order probably wrong. Okay, and in the process, if it rained too much, the plant would die. If there was enough water, the plant would die. So you got to make sure that everything's okay, and then one day, you got tomatoes, I don't Tomatoes. Okay, so you get tomatoes and you chop it up and you're like, oh, this is so life-giving. The fact that you have food on your table is a mark that God has already blessed it. So when you say bless this food, it's basically saying, wait, I thought God already blessed it. Why are you asking God to bless it twice? Uh, um, so that's why I'm like, oh, that's an interesting prayer because the fact that we're eating food, that we have food in front of us, is a sign that God has already blessed the food, right? So that's not part of my notes, but it's, you know. (laughs) But here's the thing, okay. We all have rituals. And when somebody calls me out and says, hey, you didn't pray before you you ate the food, they're calling me out on basically saying, hey, you didn't, you know, you're not following the rituals of our day. But, and that's not, you know, it's not a good example because people don't split over that, okay. But that's what's happening here. People are splitting over this stuff and people want to make sure that people are split over it because there's a group of people who are benefiting from the division, so Jesus looks at this whole situation and he says, I know what you need to do in order to fix this. So everybody leaves in. Like, what is it, Jesus? What do we have to do to fix this? Because I see the darkness in you and if you want to be people of influence, you've got to make sure there's light inside of you. I know how you can fix this. You're like, okay, tell us. What is it? What is it we have to do? Now, if we were to stop the story at this point and if I were to ask you, what are they supposed to do to fix this? How do you take the darkness inside of you and make it into light? What do you think Jesus would say at this point? People would say, oh, yeah, yeah, you need to repent. You got to pray. You know, go to your small group and share it with your friends, you know, and uh, maybe read the Bible more. You know, maybe that's what it is, right? Jesus doesn't list any of those things. You know what he says you're supposed to do? This is what he says. But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. What does that mean? Really, Jesus, that's going to fix everything? Like all the darkness inside of me is, is resolved with just being generous? Really? I would say this. For this specific situation, generosity was the thing that was going to bring cleanliness into this person's heart. General, for this Pharisee, this specific this Pharisee, when it comes to generosity, that was the thing that was going to take the darkness inside of them and make it into light. But there's a bigger principle at play here because this is, this is something I've been convinced of for the past few years. In our current situation, in our current generation of church, when it comes to worship, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to anything that we do in the church, we have this obsession nowadays called, hey, let's be authentic. You know, so if, when I say, hey, let's read the Lord's Prayer, we would say, okay, our Lord in heaven, whoever, you know, right? A lot of you would say, I don't like praying that. Why? Because it doesn't feel like it's genuine. It's not coming from my heart. It's not authentic. 
Like, to be authentic means I need to use my own words, and I have to share, you know, when I feel like... But this is what I'm noticing about this thing called authenticity. Authenticity basically means this. Do it when you feel like it. Hey, it's time to sing songs to Jesus. Let's sing. And you're like, oh, well, if I stand up and sing right now, then it's just a form of obligation. I'm not really singing it from my heart. Right. But what the Bible teaches is the exact opposite of this, which is this. The actions actually shape your heart. So let me give you an example of that. Let's just say you want to become a person who loves your enemies. I want to be people who, who looks out around and I have, you know, I don't see like, oh, these are people I like, these are people I hate. It's like, if that's what you're trying to, like, if, you, if your goal in life is to become less and less of a divisive type of person, you don't wait until like, well, I'm going to love on them when I genuinely feel like I want to love them. What the Bible teaches is, no, if you want to learn to become people who love your enemies, this is what you do. You start praying for your enemies, that they actually have the upper hand. You start hanging out with your enemies. You start being vulnerable with your enemies. You start becoming generous towards your enemies. And then eventually, your heart will also follow. It's not, I want to love my enemies, so I'm just going to pray 10 hours about, God, would you make my heart love my enemies more? It's not, like, I'm going to sing more songs about loving my enemies, and one day my heart would change. It's like, no, 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 no. What the Bible teaches is this. Start acting in a way where you're loving your enemies, and then eventually your heart will follow. Oh, man, Kotz, I, I really want to become less stingy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing more songs about it. I'm going to pray more about it. I'm going to study verses about it. It's like, no, no, no. Jesus would say, your treasures, give them away. Because where your treasures are, your heart will also be there. Your heart follows your actions. A lot of times after service, after I give my sermon, I say like, hey, okay, let's all stand and let's respond to the Lord, right? And that's, I do that on purpose because I believe that if you stand, when your body has the posture of, of worshiping and respecting, you know, whatever just happened, that maybe your heart will be there also. But there are also times where we don't say that and we're waiting for you to stand on your own because we want to see if your heart, you know, how your heart's doing, right? But the whole point here is this. We have to sometimes force ourselves to do certain things because that's the only way that our heart will follow. Maybe you're like, you know, in 2019, you know, five months ago, I made this resolution to be less controlling. So I've been singing more songs, reading more books about it. I, you know, it's like, or if you want to be less controlling, maybe what you need to do is we need to become more trusting. So even if it goes against everything that you, you stand for, it's like, I'm going to trust my spouse to deal with this, and I'm not going to say a word. And then maybe eventually your heart will follow. And this is the point that Jesus is making. You Pharisees, you have these reclining tables. You're so rich. And you made money off of the divisions in this world. If you want to fix that, maybe the first step you need to take is to be more generous. And if you're generous, maybe your heart will follow, and then maybe this division will cease to exist everything will be made clean if you just start with an act of generosity. And I thought, wow, this is so interesting. Is there anybody in history that actually lived this out, right? And I, and I thought, oh, there's a lot of people who did that. But one person that really stood out to me was a character that was introduced to me by one of my seminary professors. His name? St. Francis of Assisi. This is the oldest image that we have of St. Francis. He was he was born towards the end of the 1100s. His ministry was more in the early 1200s. And he was known as a, as a priest that was the, who, he had a nickname called the Joy of Poverty. So Frank, 
Francis, <laughs> Francis of Assisi, he, he was born to a really rich family. He had a lot of money. His parents had a lot of money, and he never had to be hungry ever, right? But as he started encountering Jesus, and as he started to get to know him, he discovered that there were poor people and, and around him. There were people who were starving, and he couldn't, he, it just bugged him. So what he did was he started giving his money away. He started feeding them to a point where he actually absolutely had nothing except for the clothes that he was wearing. And at this point, you know, because he was working in the church, the community will come to him and say, oh, I feel so bad for you. Here's some, here's some stuff. Here's some food. Here's some new clothes. Here's some shoes. Here's whatever you need. And he takes it, and he's like, okay, and he gives it out to the poor, right? Because the community refused to give to the poor, but people, for some reason, would give to the priest, right? So he thought, this is great. I'm, we're taking care of the community by people giving me some charity, so this is working out. But this is what, what's really interesting about his story, okay? At one point in the story, somebody came up to me, him and said, St. Francis, well, he wasn't called saint back then. It's after you die that you're called saint. But it's like, hey, Francis, you know, of Assisi. But people lived in Assisi. So it's just Francis. Okay, so, hey, hey, Francis. I don't know if I believe in the existence of God. Can you prove to me that God exists? And do you know what Francis' answer was? He said, all that you have, give it away to the poor, and then you will know for a fact that God exists. What is he saying here? He's saying, when you start doing the things that God has commanded you to do, even though it gets, goes against your heart, you will start to see the face of God more and more and more. Where after your actions, your heart will follow. If you were to ask King Francis, hey, what is, what is the number one lesson that you learned in life that you want to pass on everybody? No doubt he would actually say this. He would say, actions shape your heart. Actions shape your heart. Jesus said that. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But I want to end by saying this one, one psalm. This, this one psalm I want to point out to you. Because it's not just a teaching that Jesus taught. It was a teaching that existed a thousand years even before Jesus showed up on the scene and thereafter. It's, it's, it's been around for a long time. So if you look through the Bible, in the middle of it are a collection of poems called the Book of Psalms. And about 103 uh, psalms into it, you'll come across this one right here. Psalm 103. This is the first two verses. I'm going to share with you the entire thing, but skip a few verses because we don't have time. This is how it goes. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I don't know if you understand what the psalmist is saying. What the psalmist is saying this. Bless the Lord. And then he's talking to himself. The word soul Nefesh in the Hebrew doesn't mean like your spirit. Soul in the Hebrew means your entirety. So he's saying, come on, self. Come on, me. Come on. So this is David who wrote this. Come on, Dave. Come on, you can do it. Just come on. I know you don't feel like it. Just bless the Lord. Come on. Come on. Just come on. You can do it. You know, like he doesn't feel like it, but he's forced. He's, this is a command statement to himself. You need, it's like, Dave, you need to bless the Lord. I know you don't feel like it. Life around you looks just so dark right now, but just force yourself. Just, just say, oh, God, you are so good. Oh, I just don't feel like saying this today. Oh, I don't feel like singing. This psalm is like a self-talk that David is giving himself. He's saying, you need to bless the Lord. Come on, soul. Come on. All that is within me, come on. You've got to bless his holy name. And this is, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. He's like telling himself, come on. And he said, and forget not all his benefits. He says, this is how I'm going to remind myself to, 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 this is how I'm going to bless God. I'm going to start listing 
all the things I know about God to be true. And so from verse verse 3 all the way to verse 19, he lists all these reasons why he should be blessing the Lord. He's like, because he sits on the throne and he is the almighty, because his word never fails, he, his promises never fail. And he starts listing all these things through all the, whole, the entire psalm. He starts listing these reasons. He's trying to convince himself. He's like, if I just get myself out there and do it, then I know my heart will follow. And here's the cool part of this psalm, okay? When he gets to verse 19, he's totally convinced. He's like, yes, okay, I'm glad my heart finally caught up with, 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 with this whole idea of blessing the Lord, okay? But then verse 20, there's an interesting twist that happens. This is what happens in verse 20. Bless the Lord. Oh, it doesn't say, oh, my soul. It says, you, his angels. Now he's telling angels to bless God. Bless the Lord, you, his angels. You excel in strength. Uh, who excel in strength? Who do his word? Heeding the voice of his word. And then he says, bless the Lord, all you, his hosts. That's also his angels. You, minis- you ministers of his who do his pleasures. This is what's happening. Because he was able to do some actions where his heart followed, now he's in a place of influence. And he knows this to a point where he's actually telling angels, look, I did something that eventually got me to this place of where I'm genuinely wanting to worship God. Now it's your turn. He's able to influence the angels to do the things that he's doing. And then look at the next verse. He says, bless the Lord all his works. His works, he's talking about his creation, everything that he created, everything that God has created. Hey, it's your turn now. Now it's your turn. Rock, praise the Lord. You know, sky, clouds, bless the Lord. He's like, it's now your turn. And, and it all started because of this one idea that his actions came first before his heart. And as a reminder of it, he ends the very last line of this song by saying this, bless the Lord, oh my soul. Your actions have to precede your heart. Oh, I don't feel like singing today. I don't feel like worshiping God today. Then maybe what we need to do is we need to stand and sing, and then maybe your heart will follow. Oh, I need to be more generous, but I just don't feel like it. I just like to hold on to what I have, like hoarding stuff. Well, maybe what we have to do today is be generous. Now, this isn't some ploy, like, because we talked about money early, like, right? If you want to give money somewhere else, okay, this, this is about you, not about us, okay? If that's where you feel like it's a darkness inside of you, then act upon it, and then maybe your heart will follow. Are you hard to get along with? It's like, ah, oh, there's something about me. I just can't, I just don't feel like taking the time to listen to people's stories. Like, well, then maybe what you, we need to do is we need to force ourselves to listen. And then maybe after that, your heart will follow and get to a point where you're like, you know, I actually enjoy listening to people's stories. So the question still stands, which is this. How do I become a positive influence to the world? God wants to bring heaven on earth, and he wants to use all of us to do it. He wants you to take his reputation and take it into the world. That's what Christians are, people who are little Christs. We are people who represent Jesus. He wants you to be a positive influence in this world. But we've lost our influence. And Jesus says, the way that you're going to fix that, okay, your positive influence begins with heart-shaping actions. That's where you have to start. Now, in church history, we have a different word for this. We don't call it, we don't call it heart-shaping actions. <laughs> we have a word for it. It's called spiritual disciplines. These are things that we do that helps shape our hearts. So, for example, you've heard of fasting, 
And you're like, why would anybody not want to eat? Because <laughs> food is sacred. Yeah, of course we want to eat, right? Fasting is there because if we, we believe that if we fast, then maybe what we're teaching ourselves, maybe we're sh- shaping our hearts to, to a point where we realize, you know what? My body is not everything. It's a part of who I am. But my, when, I, when we starve the body, when we deny our bodies, when we deny our urges, then maybe we start to discover something better about ourselves, maybe our spirit, maybe who we are. Maybe we realize how dependent we are on our bodies. Or maybe we realize how weak we really, really are, that because I didn't have two meals, I feel so weak. Until like two meals ago, I thought I could conquer the world, but now I realize I'm actually not that strong. So some people fast because that's the way that he, they want, you know, that's the way that God shapes their hearts. Other people, other spiritual, fa- uh, spiritual disciplines, some people practice this, this discipline called silence. Where you just sit in silence for hours and hours and hours. And I've done this before, several times. And the first few hours is really tough. And I don't mean to sit there and watch TV, because I could talk not at all watching TV. We're talking about, like, going to the beach and just sitting there for hours. And you listen to the waves crashing in. And you hear the birds flying over your head. And maybe you start to appreciate God's creation more. Or maybe for some of you, you start to discover how God speaks to you. Whatever it is, these disciplines are in place so that when you do it, your heart will follow. You become the person that God wants you to be. For other people, another spiritual discipline is worship. And we do this every seven days. If you come to church every week, we do this every seven days where we come here and we sing songs about how we're not at the center of the earth. That the world is not about me. And maybe for you, you're like, yeah, people have told me I'm so self-absorbed, you know. Well, maybe the spiritual discipline you need in your life right now is worship. To remind yourself and sing songs about how God is at the center of the universe, not you. And maybe if you keep doing that, you'll become more and more, your heart will become more and more like that. Sabbath is another one where you discover that even when you take a break, the world keeps moving on. The world is not dependent on your efforts for it to exist right? Or celebration. Maybe your spiritual discipline needs to be to celebration. I, whenever people win at something and I don't win, I get just angry, you know, like, oh, I know I should be celebrating you, but I'm just so angry that I'm not the one that won. The spiritual discipline of celebration is to force yourself to celebrate somebody else's victories, right? So you become more of a grateful person. So you become a person that, that is fun to be around when you, when you win, you know, right? These are disciplines that you have to force yourself to do so that maybe your heart would follow and you would become a better person for it so that you would gain the level of influence in your life. Generosity is another one. Uh, service, to do things even when you don't feel like doing things. That I'm doing this for God even though I don't feel like it and if I do it, maybe my heart would want to do it. Spiritual disciplines are tough. That's why they're called disciplines. But it's something that I believe every believer, every follower of Jesus needs to have in their lives. Because it's that important. Because God wants to bring heaven on earth through all of us. And if we've lost our influence, if we're not the light and the lamp that's emitting and people are benefiting from it, if we're not bringing blessings of God to this world, then we're like that lamp with a bowl over it. We have the light, but it really has no purpose because it's just contained inside that bowl. So what spiritual discipline do you need in your life? What are the things that you realize, I need to change this, and you've been waiting your heart to be motivated to do certain things, but now today you're realizing, like, no, no, I just have to do it, and then maybe my heart will follow. Let me pray for you.